Well, we have been looking at the book of Nehemiah. We've just kind of begun that. Uh, if you're looking, looking forward in the Old Testament there, it's, it's going to be after all the first and seconds. You know, first and second Samuel, first and second Kings, Chronicles, then comes Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. If you open up to the middle of your Bible and hit about Psalms, head back to the left a little bit. It's before Psalms and Job. And again, there is absolutely nothing wrong with opening up to the beginning at the table of contents and finding out what page Nehemiah is on as we look at what, what he's doing today. As we've considered Nehemiah, we just got started with that. But let's again set kind of the, the setting here. That Nehemiah is, is a thousand miles away from, from Jerusalem, from the place where, where the people of God have, have been set in Israel and Judah. He's actually been taken, or his people before him have been taken captive because they ignored and they rebelled against God. God just was not important to them, and he uh, used great powers of the world to get his people's attention. And so God's people have been taken into exile. And so here sits Nehemiah in one of the capitals of the Persian Empire. And he gets a report from, from his brothers and some other men of Judah. He says, How, how's everything going in Jerusalem? How are the people? How are the walls? What's going on there? And they say, Nehemiah, it's bad. He, he says that the people are a wreck. It's a disgrace. And the walls are all broken down and the gates are burned with fire. And so remember, as he, as he heard that, this, this was news that just broke him down. And he wept. He wept. He mourned over what was happening in Jerusalem, over the people that, that were not living as God had called them to do. And, and the evidence that we see in the broken down walls and the burned gates that things were a mess there. And as Nehemiah mourned, it then said he continued fasting and praying. See, Nehemiah took this news and, and it hit him like a ton of bricks. And, and there are a few different ways that we can go from there. Some would, would just take that kind of thing and just melt into a puddle right there and, and just, that's the end. It's, it's woe is me and things are awful and there's, there's nowhere to go from here and they enter into this hopeless state of despair and just crumble and, and just like the walls, just lay there. We could also see one, and Nehemiah might be this kind of guy as he's kind of worked his way up in, in the Persian Empire there. He's a guy who knows how to get things done. He's a guy with some influence and some power and some, some intellect. And, and he might be one who says, you know what, we're going to do something about this and, and, and charge forward to make this thing happen. But Nehemiah's sorrow, Nehemiah's brokenness over what he hears about is going on doesn't drive him into despair. And it doesn't drive him into, into self-righteous and self-propelled action. It drives him to prayer. As we've been asking that question, what is that vision that God, God has put in your heart? What is that thing that keeps you up at night, that wakes you up in the morning, that you're always thinking about? That whether it's something that says, this, this is not right, this is not the way things should be, and something needs to be done about this. <clears throat> what is that thing? And then what do we do with it? This first step is prayer. 
And Nehemiah went to prayer and he prayed hard. And we'll look today at his prayer. But know well that he did not pray a prayer and then try and go. Nehemiah spent, it says, some days praying. And like we said before, if we're looking at the months that they list there, those some days, we're talking like four months that Nehemiah was face down praying before God. What do we do? And so let's look. We'll start in Nehemiah chapter 1. We'll read today verses 4 through 11 as we look at Nehemiah's prayer. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though you're dispersed, Be under the farthest skies. I will gather them from there, bring them into the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people, whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today. And grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. We read prayers like these throughout scripture. And, and it's, it's tempting to read through it and go, wow. That was a lot of words. I don't know what's going on there. Or, wow, that was a really eloquent prayer and I can never pray like that. I think it helps us if we just kind of jump in and and break it down and and see what's going on there because Nehemiah clearly felt that this was important. That the task that was before him was so big that he wasn't going to be able to do it on his own. That's why he first dove into prayer. As Oswald Chambers says, we, we saw it last week, We tend to view prayer as our last resort. Get to the point that that we've done everything we can do. We've used up all our strength. We've used up every idea we had. And we're like, I don't even know what to do anymore. I I guess we should pray about this. We tend to view prayer as our last resort. God wants it to be our first line of defense. And that's where Nehemiah starts. When he hears this stuff, he goes to prayer first because this task that God is starting to put on his heart as he hears about the people that are living in disgrace and the walls that are broken down and everything that's all crumbling and he feels this burden in his heart. He says, whatever has to be done about this, 
I can't do it on my own. This is too big for me. This is too much. And people, God forgive us and God help us for those times that we look at those things and we don't think it's too much. For those times that we look at it and we're like, you know what? I got this. I don't need God for this. God help us when that's our, our idea. So Nehemiah goes to prayer. We've looked at, at this before and I want to spend some time looking at it again because Nehemiah's prayer breaks down really nicely here. At this model of prayer, I think the navigators might have done this. I don't, I don't remember who came up with that. But an acts prayer, where each one of those letters stands for something. A prayer that starts with adoration. Just looking at God and, and spending some time just first being amazed that God is God. And realizing that I'm not. Looking at how incredible God is in, in the things that he does and, and the way, who he is. And when we see that comparison, it leads us into confession. It leads us into saying, I'm not there. I, I've, I've missed on so many levels. And then we can move into thanksgiving. And finally, supplication, which is a big word for making our requests known. If you're like me, my prayers often start at that last point. I think supplication might have two P's in it. I don't know. I think I spelled it wrong. But if you're like me, sometimes your prayers start at the bottom of this. God, I need this. And maybe sometimes they end there too. So let's look at what Nehemiah does as he's walking through this prayer. He starts out in verse 5 there. O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. He starts by addressing God. And let's not take that lightly. The fact that we can pray and the God who created all things hears us. The God who holds the universe in order knows you and wants to hear from you, that's huge. And so as he starts off and he calls out, Oh Lord, God of heaven. We see him using first the, the name by which God is known. When we see Lord in all capital letters in your Old Testament there, that's the name when, when Moses was standing before that burning bush. And God called to him and said, I want you to go and lead my people out of slavery. Talk about something that's bigger than what you can do. Moses has been working as a shepherd for about 40 years here. And, and God says, I want you to go back into the place that still has your wanted posters hanging. Get back into Egypt. Go talk to the man in charge of the whole world at this point And tell him, all these people are, are leaving with me. Whew. So Moses, standing before this burning bush, says, Well, when I go there, the people are going to ask who sent me. He's, he's thinking, I, I can't tell him, I was in the desert, I saw a bush on fire, and I decided to come, right? He says, what shall I tell the people? And God says, I am that I am. 
a, a phrase that doesn't seem like it makes any sense, but when it comes down to it, it is just this idea that he is all of existence owes every life, every breath, every step to the one who is. And God reveals himself to Moses and, and he speaks that name, I am, that, that gets translated into the Hebrew of, of something like Yahweh. And, and the scribes wouldn't speak that name. They wouldn't even write it out in, in its entirety because they understood they were so unworthy to even speak his name or write it out. And, and so they would put in the word Lord. So when you see it all capital letters, Lord, that's not just saying master. That's saying this is the name by which God revealed himself to Moses, by which God revealed himself to his people. The name that says, I am the one who is over everything. And I am the one who has called you my people and has made a covenant with you. And I am the one who will lead you. as Nehemiah starts out his whole prayer speaking to Yahweh, to the Lord, to I am, to the one who is over all things, even as he is under enemy power, he's already making some sort of confession that God is great. And then he continues it with speaking of the God of heaven, which became a phrase that, that was used throughout the Old Testament, but even some of the foreign powers started to pick that up, this, this idea of a, of a God in heaven, a, a supreme being. And so whether it's by words of the very people of God, Lord, or whether it's something that other nations are starting to recognize, God of heaven, Nehemiah makes his request. He steps before the one who is able. And he says, it's got to be you. Because I can't do this. He says, oh Lord, God of heaven. And then he calls him the great and awesome one. The one who is mighty. Who has power to do all this. And the one who is holy. The one who is set apart. And, and is so far beyond anything that we can grasp or imagine. He is awe-inspiring. He calls him great and awesome. He calls him the one who keeps his covenant and his steadfast love. As God has called his people and has said... You will be my people and I will be your God. He keeps that covenant when he made the covenant with Abraham. If we jump back to Genesis and we see that covenant being made, we see that Abraham is going to go and have this covenant with God. And, and as they cut the covenant and are sto supposed to walk through, the way that works is, is the animals that are sacrificed get laid out there and one person walks through the blood and says, if, if all these uh, all these uh, regulations of the covenant are not kept, and, and if I break them, then let it be as these animals, this blood that is all over me, let me be slain like that. And then the other person will walk through and say, yeah, me too. If I don't keep everything that we see here, then I will be as these animals, all bloody. When God made his covenant with Abraham, we see Abraham seeing it, and then this deep sleep falls over him, and he sees God 
signified in that vision by, by a, a pot with fire that goes through the blood and back through the blood. And Abraham never steps foot in it. God says, this is the covenant I will keep. You are my people. I am your God. If I violate the terms of this covenant, then, then let me be trenched in blood. And if you violate the terms of the covenant, let me be drenched in blood. But God made that covenant with his people. He made it by his own name. And Nehemiah looks at this. He sees one who is great, one who is powerful, one who is holy, one who keeps the covenant with his people, who is ultimately faithful. And, and this, this adoration of God, this looking at God and seeing who he is, gives him the faith to continue on in what he's doing. But as it always does, too, when we look at God and, and we see who he is, that he has given his commandments, that he has not left his people wondering. And, and Nehemiah sees that, that this great God who keeps his covenant and has given his commandments, he also then sees we haven't kept those commandments. That leads him to a place of repentance and confession. Calvin says that one of the requisites for legitimate prayer is repentance is coming face to face with that, that we see the greatness of God and we realize, I don't have that same kind of greatness. I have rebelled against his greatness. I have fallen short of everything that he has demanded of me. And Nehemiah sees the same thing and so he moves into confession. In verse six, we see him talking of confessing the sins of the people of Israel. Confessing the sins of the people of Israel. He has looked back over the history and he has seen how again and again and again God's people have not acted like God's people. They have not lived like God's people. They have ignored him and rebelled against him. And that's even why they're in exile now. But he doesn't look back and say, those guys were all messed up. They couldn't get their stuff together. Forgive them for what they're doing. He identifies himself with it too, and why wouldn't he? Because everything they did, yeah, that's me too. So as he looks and he confesses the sins of the people of Israel, he says, which we have sinned against you. We have acted very corruptly in verse 7 against we have not kept the commandments, the statutes, the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Nehemiah identifies his own sin along with the sin of his people. He admits it. He confesses it. He looks at, at what has happened and he says, God, it, it's right. We're in exile. The walls of the city are crumbling. The people are living in disgrace. And, and truth be told, it's only right because that's how we've lived before you. But in that confession, in that coming to terms with it and calling sin, sin, 
as God's holiness exposes it, there can also then be that repentance, that turning away from it. And that's where Nehemiah can move into thanksgiving. Look at verse 8 where he says, Remember the word that you commanded. As Nehemiah is speaking of thanksgiving, he starts praying God's word back to him. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses. Saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, Though you're dispersed beyond the farthest skies, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. Nehemiah starts looking and, and he, he speaks God's words back to him. Words that God gave to Moses. That, that we looked at before where it says that, that God told his people that if you're going to ignore me, if you're going to rebel, I'm going to have to get your attention and you will be scattered among the nations. He, he gave that word to Moses and Moses delivered it to the people. We saw when Solomon, hundreds of years later, was, was dedicating the temple, that he spoke those words in the dedication of the temple, that if we ignore you, God will be scattered throughout the nations. But if we will turn and call on you, you will be faithful and draw us back. And Nehemiah is again looking at these things and he's calling out to the Lord. He thanks him for the things that he has said, the way he has shown his people that this is what will happen. And the way he has continued to act in grace and faithfulness that says even at that time, you told us you'd bring us back. You told us that wouldn't have to be the end, that, that you would bring us back and bring us home. And so even as he's looking at that and thanking God for what he has said, he thanks God for what he has done. In verse 10, they're your servants. They are your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. You have redeemed. You have bought them out of slavery. He looks back over his people's history and sees God working in Egypt through Moses and bringing his people out of slavery. He sees God delivering his people from war. He sees God building his kingdom. He says, God, you have been good. And you have promised to be good to us. And even as we are in exile, God, you are still good. You are still showing yourself true and faithful and gracious. It's funny because Nehemiah's mourning is what has brought him into this time of prayer. The pain that he's feeling is what's brought him into this time. And yet he's able to look at that and through that and thank God for what he's doing. He's been able to look at God's faithfulness and say, you have been and you will be. One of my favorite professors used to say, I'm sure he still does say, what God has done in the past is a promise and a model for what he will do in the future. 
And so Nehemiah drops before the Lord. And he says, even as you have done and as we have seen you work, would you do it again? And it's after all of that. Empowered by, by that thanksgiving and seeing who God is and what he has done, that Nehemiah comes with his request. He asks that the Lord's ear be attentive to the prayer. He asks that he would have success before the king, that he would be granted mercy. It's interesting as we look at Nehemiah's request. Because now he's come through all of this and, and he doesn't know when, but he knows at some point something's got to happen. And if he's going to leave, the king's going to have to sign off on that because he's working right there with the king. And so he says, grant your servant success. Give me mercy in the sight of this man. Nehemiah's prayer is specific. It's specific in that he knows he's going to have to go before the king. It's specific in that he knows that how this is going to happen. He's going to have to have success with the king. The king is going to have to be merciful and say, yeah, that's fine. Go, leave the position that, that you're in here. Leaving a void here in the king's court so you can go do this thing. He knows that that's going to have to happen. And, and so he's specific in his request, but he's not overly specific, is he? He says, grant success. Grant mercy. He's not specific to the point of demanding of God, and this is how you will do that. He's not overly specific to the, to the point that he's laying everything out before God and, and acting presumptuously and demanding. But he's also not so vague as to say, God, make everything better. And then there's that little line that we get out at the end of his prayer. After he's gone through adoring God and marveling at who he is, as he's gone through confessing his own shortcomings and, and the, the evil that is within him and all his people. As he's thanked God for his mercy and for his goodness and now has, has spoken his request to God, there's this little line right at the end of the chapter. Now, I was the cupbearer to the king. We spent quite a bit of time talking about the cupbearer, but the thing I want to point out as we're looking at Nehemiah's prayer is that in that line, we see that God has already been working. God has already been doing things. He has been putting things into place. He has been building into Nehemiah the design of the man that he has prepared for this. He has been putting into him the faithfulness that he is going to need. He has been moving him through the ranks in, in a foreign pagan court to put him in just the right place at just the right time. When he hears this devastating news that he's in the place and he's been prepared even though he's going to feel very unprepared. God's already been at work. 
if we're looking for an application of this, I'm, the easy one is to say, you need to pray. I need to pray. We know that. That's obvious. Why don't we? I like the way Alistair Begg put it. This says, if our prayer is meager, it's because we view it as supplemental and not fundamental. We look at prayer as something to, to tack on to the other things that we're doing to try and ensure success. Rather than that being the very bedrock and foundation for everything that we're doing. We've got to change our minds about what this is. It's not just coming together and, and presenting God with a list. And so as you think about that vision, that thing that, that God keeps poking at you with, we need to dive into prayer over those things. I hope that, that you've maybe even torn off that section. You've got it hanging up somewhere. And if you haven't, then I'm going to ask for the same thing as we did last week. Be thinking about that and praying about that and identify that thing that God is working in you that says something's got to be done here. Write it down. Put it up so that you can see it so it's always before your face. And let's be honestly seeking God about those things. Jesus, we thank you. We thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you that we have life in you, and we thank you that you call us into things that are beyond what we can do. God, forgive us of trusting you too little. Forgive us of chasing after menial things and ignoring what you call us to. God, we pray that you impress upon us a vision that only you can do. A vision that as we look at it, it drives us to our knees to say, God, if this is ever going to happen, you've got to come through because I don't have what it takes. And then, Lord, may we praise you and glorify you as we see you work. I pray this in Jesus' name.